If you can grab your Bible and turn open to Jude, the passage that we just read, uh, it's going to be right at the back of your Bible just before the book of Revelation, Jude, and we're going to look at the last part of that letter. And I don't know about you, uh, I have... I've never personally run a marathon. I know there are people in our church family who have. Pastor Ted has. Uh, It's pretty amazing. But if you've ever run a marathon, you know right from the beginning the goal is actually get to the end. The goal is to cross the finish line. That's, That's the goal. That's what you're running and to get to. And all along the way, there's lots of help. There's clear signage to help you stay on track, to make sure you're still on the race course. Uh, there are water stations on the side at times, sometimes people running alongside to give you some water or some Gatorade to keep you hydrated, to keep you going. Uh, crowds on the side cheering you on, keep going, all so that you can get to the end, so you can finish the race so that you can end the marathon. Now, imagine if you were to sign up for a marathon that was actually designed by the world. The world actually, their intention was to keep you from running that race. So imagine running this kind of race in which the course The course was always being sabotaged. People were trying to disqualify you and derail you from running. They'd throw trees and branches in the path. They'd dig pits and potholes for you to fall into. There would be snares and traps. They'd release dogs to bark and bite at you. They would actually have people on the sides of the course shouting and mocking and, and just belittling you, trying to discourage you from running, throwing trash and garbage in your face to trip you up and to discourage you from running. In fact, what if the crowds on the side actually came onto the course and started walking in your way? They actually were trying to impede you, walking opposite to the direction you were trying to run. It would be incredibly discouraging. And you'd be wondering, is that a kind of race you'd want to sign up for? Is that... The kind of race, would it be worth running? Well, what if I said that everyone who runs that race and finishes that race is immediately ushered into God's very presence with eternal, unending, and ever-increasing joy and love and peace in his presence, and everyone who doesn't run that race and prevents other people from running that race, enters into eternal hell, devoid and absence of all love and joy and peace. So knowing that, is it worth running the race? (laughs) Absolutely. The stakes are incredibly high. They're eternal. And so we want to know how, how are we going to run this kind of race when the stakes are so high. And praise the Lord, we're not alone. God has given us in his word instructions on how to run this race according to his word and powered by his Holy Spirit so that we can run to the very end, so we can cross that finished line. And God mercifully knowing that we're not able to run this kind of a race or even enter this kind of a race, sent his son as the forerunner, Jesus Christ, to come and run this race in our stead for us 
so that he might run it perfectly, full of love and hope and trust in the Father all the way to the end, so that he in turn can now turn to us and really rescue us out of the sidelines where we were. We were the scoffers. We were the sinners on the side, trying to discourage other people from running the race. But he saved us and made us, he made us lovers of the gospels and runners of the gospel. And now we're in the race. And now he's given us everything to keep running that race faithfully to the end. And that's really getting at something Jude is talking about in his letter. This is almost one of the main reasons why he wrote this very letter in the beginning of his letter. He mentions he found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He is concerned about these believers. He's concerned that they started the race and they started well. But something's happened. They, they've got tripped up. Some got snagged in some snares. Some got derailed. They seem like they're leaving the path. And he's writing a letter in urgency, in truth, to get them back on the path, to keep them running, to keep going to the very end. And so he writes to them. And it would be good for us to listen in on what he's written because Ephesians 5 says that the days are evil. Our days are evil. And so we want to, we live in a world, don't we, that wants to distract us from this race? The world is not really eager for any believer to finish well. And so we want to know from God how he's going to help us and enable us to finish well. Well, the first thing we see here from Jude is that he reminds believers not what to do. That's always interesting. The Bible often will start not with what you're supposed to do, but it'll always start with who you are. And now that you know who you are, you're able to run the race. I love how the Bible emphasizes that. It doesn't reverse it. If we reverse this, man, we get really messed up. And the whole Christian faith just ends up being like any other world religion where you're driven by fear because you never know if you've done enough good to earn God's love, or you think you have and you're full of pride and you're disqualified. So it's a, it's a lose-lose. So we can't get this reversed. We have to get it in the proper order. Jude starts with who we are before he lays out how we then ought to live and run the race. And in verse 17, he says, you'll notice right there, beloved. Do you notice what he calls them? He calls the believers beloved. He calls us as believers beloved. He says it in verse 17. He actually says it in verse 3. He actually says it later in verse 20. He says it three times. Beloved, beloved, beloved. And why would he call us beloved? Well, if we go back to verse 1, he explains that we are those who are called Beloved of God, that's the verb form of it, beloved of God, the Father, and kept in Jesus Christ. As believers, we are called beloved because we are actually loved by God. <laughs> we are loved by God, the Father. Why does He love us? Why would God love us? Well, in Ephesians 1, verse 5 and 6, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption 
to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He wanted us in his family. And so he planned that he would save us. And why? Because he loved us. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, Jesus Christ is the beloved of God. And God sent, God the Father sent his beloved son in order to make a way for others like us to be saved and adopted into him, through him, into the beloved so that we could become Beloved, Do you see how God has mapped this out? Well, when did this all happen? Well, as we just read in Ephesians 1, God planned this before creation. He accomplished this at the cross, and he applied it in our lives at our conversion. Romans 5 verse 8 reminds us that he did all of this while we were sinners. There wasn't anything that we did to impress God or draws attention to us. No, God mapped this out from the beginning of time and applied it and accomplished it on the cross even while we were yet sinners. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Titus has a nice summary here in chapter 3 verse 4 to 7. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, that we might become heirs, we might be adopted children that would receive the inheritance of eternal life that Jesus won for us. And Romans 5 says, this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit has been poured into our lives, as Ephesians 1 later says in verse 13 to 15, as a guarantee, as a deposit, as a down payment that God's going to actually do what he's promised to do. It's a seal. It's a promise guaranteeing that, yes, he loves us. He loves us indeed. And that he will guide us and comfort us and empower us to continue to run this race and to transform us more and more into his beloved son as we run the race. And so we take on more and more of the likeness. We reflect more and more of the character of Jesus, the beloved, because we are beloved. We've been made beloved of God, adopted children into the family of God, being made more and more into the likeness of the son of God, the beloved. 1 John 3, verse 1. What a great passage. I've been so encouraged by this passage this week. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Do you ever doubt that God loves you? Do you ever wonder if you have gone beyond his love? 
if you strayed beyond his love or that his love has left you because of things that we have done or things that we have said or the time since we really last were running the race. Do you doubt God's love for you? Beloved child, fear no more. Fear no more. Let your apprehensions melt away. Know that God has loved you. He has set his love upon you before you were even born, before you even had an opportunity to mess things up. He loved you. And then he saved you. He accomplished your salvation even while you were a sinner, while you didn't even like God, when you weren't even pursuing God. And now that he has made you his own, how much more should we be convinced that he loves us? He came for us. He died for us. He was buried for us. He ascended for us. He has poured out his Holy Spirit in us. He loves us. This passage says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. If you put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't say that you can be, or could be, or might be a child of God. You are a child of God. You're a beloved child of God. This is great news. And if you have a hard time getting your heart around this, it's understandable. This marathon that we're running is long and hard, and it gets confusing at times. But you got to know that even when it doesn't feel like you're the beloved, God says you are his beloved. Let who you are shape how you live and think and view and interpret all that's going around you. And if at any point you just kind of come to the point where you're like, I don't believe that, do you know that God will love you back into repentance until you agree with him that you are the beloved of God? So even if you disagree with him for a time, that doesn't actually make you not be his beloved. God loves you so much, his loyal love is so committed and fixed upon you as his child that he understands we ebb and flow. We go in and out of various seasons of trial. And he loves us. He loves you. And he will draw you back in a perfect way as a loving father knows you particularly, your personality, your context, and your situation, and all your circumstances, and everything that's going on around you. He knows how to draw you to himself. He gets it. He gets it. And he loves you. You're his beloved. You can't get out of that. Hallelujah. You can't get out of that. So this is why Jude starts here. This is why he starts with our identity as the beloved children of God before he instructs us on the responsibilities as, of being a child of God. And so this is where we want to start. We start with being the beloved. He always wonderfully calls and addresses us as God's beloved. Now, here are four instructions. Now we know who we are. Here are four instructions of how ought we now to live as God's beloved? What does it look like now to walk as his beloved, as a child of God, adopted into the family of God? What does it look like to run this race? 
And the first thing that you'll notice here that he reminds us of is first, beloved, we need to remember God's warning. We need to remember God's warnings. In verse 17, Jude says that you'll be reminded about what the apostles warned you about. The apostles are those that Jesus had appointed to spread the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere. And they warned us of what would happen in the last time. The time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, which is, which is right now. Jesus has come about 2,000 years ago, and he's coming again. And this is the last times, the latter times that we find ourselves in. And there will be increased opposition and hostility towards the gospel and those who love the gospel, towards Christians and the very Christian faith, by people teaching all sorts of wrong things in order to justify not only their own sins, and as Jude says, their ungodly passions, but even to lure and derail Christians from their path to join them in their lies. And so Paul even says this, He's one of the apostles in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressively says that in later times, that's now, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, though the, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. Again, Paul actually writes in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. This is what Jesus himself warned us against in Matthew 24, 11 to 13. He says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We should not be surprised that Jude was writing about this warning, warning them, remembering God's warning of false teaching. We should not be surprised in our own day. We're in the latter times that there is false teaching even in our own world. And I find over COVID, I have been very tempted to just go online and Google stuff. There is all sorts of garbage online. That doesn't, online isn't inherently evil, but we need to be very discerning. There is so much false teaching on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. Sometimes it's your friends that are saying these things, and we need to be very discerning. Jude explains in verse 18 that these false teachers are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. That means they're unregenerate. They're unbelievers. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They are being guided by another Spirit, the Spirit of this age. And they are just walking according to their fallen hearts and fallen flesh in a fallen world, 
seeking to invite you to join them, to be convinced of the lies that they themselves have embraced and are putting a good face on and saying, look how good it is. Why are you still doing that thing? Why are you still running that race you're running? And if believers, if we buy into this, if we embrace these things, then our faith is weakened. The church is susceptible to division. And Satan can derail a church from its mission. You know, sometimes we think that these false teachers will be really easy to spot. You know, like a witch flying on a broom through a room. Like, that's, that's an easy one to spot. But these people are typically, you know, they're well-dressed. They got a nice smile. They seem quite nice. They seem quite positive. They seem to be out for my best interest. And they have a problem, though. They, they say that, that Jesus isn't really God. Or they say that Jesus didn't actually come to pay for sins on the cross. He just came to give you a good example of love to follow as a role model. Or that he came to give you wealth and health and give you your best life now. Or that he, he came to actually give you the power to manifest and to speak out your own reality as a God. These are heresies with a smile. And we need to be discerning as a people, as God's people, who want to hear God's words, not what we hear online. We need to be discerning. We need to hear God's warning. Let's just do a little math. Just a little math here. Let's just think about this past week and how much time, just rough numbers here, you can round down even if you want. How much time did we spend on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, social media? How much time? Just ballpark it. So many hours a day, multiply that by seven. Add to that how much time we spent on Netflix, Disney Plus, Prime, you name it. Just how much time were we just kind of soaking in what the world was willing to give us? And then add to that how much time we saturated ourselves uh, just in, the, in news. There's so much news out there. We're listening to news reports. We're reading articles, headlines, news clips. We're just saturating ourselves with the world's interpretation of the events and what it's telling us is going on. Just add all that up. Ballpark it. Get an idea of how much time we're listening to the outside world. We're, we're listening to its values, its interpretations, its worldview. Now, on the other hand, add up all the time this past week that you were able to spend in God's Word, reading God's Word, hearing a godly podcast. Maybe you were hearing God's Word um, while you're getting ready for the day or driving in the car and commuting. Maybe you were listening to a, a good godly sermon that was Scripture-saturated or a praise and worship song that had good Scripture content and lyrics. Maybe you were in some great conversations and you were listening to some good godly counsel from people in your small group or at church or maybe over the phone. Just add all that up. How many, how many hours were we taking in that? Who are we listening to? And you add this up. 
Who are we listening to? Who has our ear? Because whoever has our ear will probably have our mind too. And if we're, uh, of course, there's nothing wrong with reading the news or going on YouTube and learning a skill or watching a game and relaxing. But is this, when I do these things, is it drawing me to Christ? Is it helping me abide in Christ? Is it helping me grow in Christ? Or is this thing I'm watching and listening to actually drawing me away from Christ? I'm not discerning anymore and, and trying to figure out where they're coming from and does it line up with Scripture. I'm just swallowing it. I'm just swallowing it. No discernment. I'm just in, it's just going right into me. And without even realizing it's changing the way I think and view all of life, and it's affecting my choices. It's affecting my behavior. We need to heed God's warning. God said, this is what we are in. These kinds of days with these kinds of people. I am constantly pleading with my kids. I'm constantly pleading with people in our church. I'm constantly pleading with people outside of our church. Be discerning. Every, every person you're talking to, every teacher, every politician, every pastor, every uh, person on social media, all your friends, every news feed, every artist, every song, every movie, every director and producer of a movie is all trying to tell you something. And if we are not able to take that and compare it and run it through Scripture and be discerning, we, we will be led astray. It often happens quite subtly. No one ever just jumps right off a cliff. They're just slowly, blade of grass by blade of grass, closer and closer to the edge. We need to be wise and vigilant and heed God's warning. These are the last days. And so we need to be wise. Secondly, if we're going to finish this race well, not only do we need to remember God's warning, but we need to remain in God's love. We need to remain in God's love. If we're always like, okay, don't, do, don't think that, don't watch that, don't watch that, that's never going to work. <laughs> because all you're doing is actually thinking about it. You're just telling yourself not to. What God is calling us to do is actually stay in God's love, fix your mind somewhere else, and that is on his love. In verse 20, Jude turns his attentions to believer, as we already said. He calls them, but you, beloved, you're supposed to be different. Why? Because you're a child of God. You're beloved. You're beloved. So this, there's something different now. You should, you should live differently. You should look differently. He gives a key command here that is necessary for us to finish the race well. And that command actually comes in verse 21, where he says, keep yourselves in God's love. Keep yourselves in God's love. This means to guard your heart and your mind so that you keep believing that God loves you and you keep fostering your love for God. I'll say that again. To keep yourself in the love of God means that you're guarding your heart and your mind, the things you're thinking and the things you're loving so that you keep believing that God actually loves you. You are beloved. And that you're fostering your love for God in response. 
1 John 4, 19 wonderfully, succinctly sums this up. We love because he first loved us. You can't get it more condensed than that. That is so right. And that's what Jude's talking about here. We want to protect that. We want to, we want to guard and grow that truth in our life that God loves us and that we in turn love God. Now, that doesn't mean that everything goes great in our life. Everything's, you know, all rose petals and wonderful. There's a lot of trials. Life is really hard and messy. But there's a way in which as beloved children of God, we can go through these trials, these valleys, with his peace and his joy and his presence as he is with us as the good shepherd, no matter what. So in these ways, we continue to guard our hearts now, he actually lays out, there's three I-N-G words here in verse uh, 20 and 21 that explain to us how we keep ourselves in the love of God. The, the first way that we do this, how we guard and grow our love for God, is growing in the Word. Growing in the Word. That's the first one there. Verse 20 says that we are to be building yourselves up in your most holy faith. This means to grow and mature our faith, or literally to, to build upon the most holy faith that we have received, once for all delivered, handed down, depending on your translation, to the saints. That means that we are to grow. We, Jesus is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. And as we read God's word, we continue to grow and build a greater and greater understanding of who God is and what he has done through the gospel and the work of Christ and all that he has promised us as believers. And our faith grows as our theology and doctrine grow. It is good to learn sound, healthy doctrine. Paul often relates this or uh, compares this to healthy food. As you grow in theology, as you grow in the Word of God and rightly putting it together so we see God rightly and understand what He did rightly and understand His promises rightly, it's like eating good food. It's good for your, it's good for your soul, just like good food is good for your body. This is what it is to grow ourselves in the Word. When we do so, we grow in truth. It guards us from error. We're able to pinpoint that a, uh, error much more fast, much more faster than we would otherwise. And it gives us the inheritance as we believe to the very end. See, Paul says in Acts 20, verse 32, he was talking to the elders of Ephesus in this passage, and he says, I'm not going to see you anymore, but this is what I am going to do. I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, the scriptures, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's able to build you up and grow you so that as you keep understanding and growing and believing his truth, you do so from day to day and month to month and year to year, and you run the race until you cross the finish line and you inherit the inheritance that Jesus has won for you as an adopted child of God. And this is how we grow in the word and remain in God's love. We can do this in all sorts of ways. You, we ought to do this in all sorts of ways. When we're at home, personally, reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, 
uh, memorizing what you just read. Maybe there was a certain passage that really jumped out to you in the morning as you were reading. Memorize that. Share that with someone else. We, we do this personally. We do this corporately together right now. We are being built up in the Word as we hear the Word preached and sung and prayed. We do this in small groups as we look into God's Word and seek to apply it in our lives. We can do this at prayer meetings. We can do this at hope courses. We have hope courses uh, right now that help us understand how do we read and interpret God's Word rightly. We're hoping to add some more hope courses uh, this coming year that fill out understanding of theology and doctrine, but also ethics. How would we even apply that doctrine rightly in our current world with current issues? We're trying to equip our church family to think rightly of the Word and grow in the Word so that we can remain in the love of God. That's the first one. There's another way that we remain in God's love that Jude highlights here, and that is praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, verse 20 talks about this. Jude says that we're to pray in the Holy Spirit. Praying is simply talking with God. And praying in the Spirit is simply talking with God and being led by the Spirit while you do it. And so that means you're being led, guided, empowered, and strengthened as you pray. This might look like as you're praying to the Lord, maybe someone's name comes to mind. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit prompting you. Pray for that person. And maybe the Spirit also brings to mind a passage of Scripture. Maybe the one that you were reading that morning. Maybe it was Psalm 23. And so you begin to pray that Scripture for that person. And you begin to pray, Lord, would you be their shepherd? Would you lead them along paths of righteousness for your namesake? Would you cause them to lie down in green pastures? Would you lead them beside still waters or waters of rest? Would you, would you do that for them? That's being led by the Spirit, praying in the Spirit with His Word for His people. We can do this at home. We can do this personally. We can do this all together. We can do this together. Again, in our small groups, we pray here. Uh, maybe in a prayer meeting just this past Thursday, we were meeting here and online uh, to pray and to pray Here's some guidelines. Here's some biblical verses and topics that we want to pray about. But then we're led by the Spirit to pray about those things. And I was right here, actually, praying with a family. And we ended up praying by the Spirit. Spirit was leading us to pray for this one girl's healing. She had all sorts of different ailments and uh, no, uh, no opportunities to get any medical help. And so we prayed. This is, this is how, this is normal. <laughs> this is normal for the believer to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, not to assume we got our own agenda, that we know what we're doing, that we are being led by the Spirit in our prayers. Because, well, let's go to the third one here. Uh, that's the second one. So we're growing in the Word, we're praying in the Spirit, and the third ING word, the third way that Jude tells us that we keep ourselves in the love of God is by waiting for Christ, waiting for Christ's coming. In verse 21, it says that we are to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means his coming, his second coming, his return. We are to be actively, consciously looking forward to his coming. The hope of Jesus coming back is not some 50-50 lottery. 
It's not like, I don't know, he might be coming back. It's been a while. No, it's something that hasn't happened yet, but we're anticipating with absolute 100% certainty. He is coming back. We don't know the timestamp on that, but we know he is. He is coming for us. Titus 2, again, summarizes this wonderfully. For the grace of God has appeared, Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age, waiting waiting for our blessed hope. That word blessed means joyful, happy. Our happy hope. What is it? The appearing of the glory of, the great, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who we are waiting for. This is what we are waiting for because when Jesus comes, well then, yeah, we, everything changes. We get a new body. We get to be with Jesus forever. We, we enter into the new heavens and earth. Like everything, everything changes when he shows up. This is our blessed, our joyful hope as Christians, waiting for his coming. Now, you can see how all these begin to work together, right? All three of these work together so that as I am growing in God's word, I'm now equipped to pray in the Spirit better, and I'm reminded to wait and look forward to Christ's coming. As I'm praying in the Spirit, I'm driven to God's Word because I want to pray according to His Word. But as I read His Word and as I'm praying, my heart is growing in its affection and longing for Jesus to come back. And as I'm looking forward to Jesus' return, I'm moved to pray Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and it drives me back into his word to hold on to his promises until he comes. Do you see how these, these all work together? And so it requires action. It requires action. We, we have responsibilities as God's children to do our part. It's not as though we are passive. It's not as though we're just kind of like waiting for the commercials to finish until the real show starts. No, we are to be actively involved right now as we run this race, this marathon of faith before us, doing these things. And as we run this race of faith, keeping ourselves in the love of God, we need to understand these aren't just kind of optional things that God says, you know, this will, this will help. You know, this will be kind of like a a double booster or whatever like that. No, this is, these are necessary means. I, I, if I just set one of these aside, if I just kind of set aside God's word, I won't finish the race. If I just stop praying, I'm done, done with that. I, I don't finish the race. If I could care less about Jesus coming, if the only thing I'm really looking forward to, if my blessed hope is my career or marriage or having a whole bunch of kids or grandkids. These are all great things. Nothing inherently wrong with those. But if, they, if I take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. If the, is that my blessed hope? God loves you so much that he will help bring those things back into the right proportions so that you can place your hope on what you ought to be placing it on, which is his return. These are necessary means, necessary ways that help us keep running the race of faith together. And this is really touching on our third point, the third thing that Jude instructs us on 
and how to finish this race well is that as we run this race, keeping ourselves in the love of God, his mercy and his love grow in us and begin to flow out from us, showing acts of love and mercy on others. Other runners that we're running with, maybe mockers on the side, inviting them to join you in running this race. And this is what Jude says here, that we reach out with God's mercy. We reach out with God's mercy. This is another way in which we finish the race well. Jude says in verse 22 and 23, to have mercy, to show mercy. He repeats himself. This is a marathon, as we talked about. This is a long run. This is a long game. Lots of hardships along the way. All designed lovingly by our Heavenly Father to grow us in faith. So it's not like he's kind of like, you know, he was there at the beginning uh, of the race and shot the gun. And he's like, okay, I'll see you at the end. No, that's not God at all. He's right there with us. He's actually mapping the course for us. As hard as it is, as many trials and obstacles that we run into, they are designed for our good to grow us in faith, to wean us from self-sufficiency so that all our dependency is on God. These are all good, good things. But as we are running, we get tripped up at times. We get our eyes off of Christ. We have people that were running right with us. They were right there. And where did they go? They, they got snagged in a snare. They, they got tripped up in a pothole. Someone grabbed them from the side and yanked them over. And Jude helps us to know how do we respond when that happens? How do we respond when people that we were running with, they're not, they're not right there anymore? What happens when we get snared and tripped up? What happens? What ought we to do? I was reminded of this past Olympics of a, another race that happened years ago in Europe. And I believe it was in Spain. There was a runner who was running the marathon and easily winning. I think he was from Ethiopia. He was, con he was blowing the water out of everyone. He was just way ahead. And for some reason, he stops 100 meters before the finish line. They don't know if he maybe misread some signs or if he, what happened? He, just, he thought he had finished. He thought he had crossed the line. He stopped. And the person in second place, like almost a minute behind him, comes running up. Now, he had some options. But what he did was he, he grabbed him and said, keep going. It's right up there. Keep running. It was a wonderful display. He, he had some options. He could have blown right by him. And we have options too, don't we? As believers, when we see a brother or a sister stop running, we could just blow by them, cancel them. <laughs> you're, you're lost. See ya. I'm out for me. I'm going to keep running me. We could slander them on social media, you know, with rants or, you know, Christian passive-aggressive comments that, you know, hopefully shame them back into repentance. Or we could... Just ghost them, ignore them. Hopefully they'll pick up the hint and come back. There's lots of ways in which we wrongly go about seeking to help our brothers and sisters. But Jude lays out, lays out a better way. He lays out ways in which we are moved. We are moved by the mercy that God has shown us 
show mercy to those who have uh, got caught and snared. And he does this, he really addresses kind of three types of people, three groups of people that are in different levels of being in a bad spot, different levels of being tripped up and trapped. They've all stopped running, but we want to go to these people. And he highlights this in verse 21. First, this group of doubters. They're running, or they were, but now they're doubting. Uh, They're confused. Things have gotten a little foggy. Their convictions on what's right and wrong is uh, starting to waver because they've been listening to this or whatever that is. And they're, they're getting pretty flimsy on what God's Word says. And so here is a call for us to patiently come alongside them, open God's Word, and remind them of the truth of God, calling them to believe the Word of God and to hold fast to the Word of God. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is that first group, this this group, they're, they're doubters. They're running, but they're beginning to look beside them, and their pace is slowed up. Slow up with them, grab them. Open the word and begin running with them again. Be patient with them. There's a second group here. There's a second group that they've moved beyond doubt. They would actually be deceived. They would be deceived. Verse 23 describes some believers here that have gone a step further. They are not merely confused. They're actually convinced of these false teachings, things that are being said from the sidelines. And they're not just kind of looking around. They've actually stopped. And they're listening And they're asking, explain this more. Tell tell me more. What do we do in those situations? We we put on the brakes. We go back. We grab that person. We're like, no. And there is an urgency there to speak truth in love, to be able to help them, remind them of God's word. Jude calls this like snatching them from a fire that's beginning to burn them. They've stopped And they're talking to someone and they don't realize that sparks are flying and they're actually, their pants and shirt are catching on fire. And you come alongside and you're like, whoa, 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 get away from that. And it's not just any fire. Amos 4.11 and Zechariah 3.2 use the same imagery to describe someone being saved from the fires of hell because it's that serious. If, If they stop and they keep talking, and they go that step further of embracing it and just leaving the race, well, that gets them on a bad road that leads them further and further away from Jesus and salvation. And so it's serious. It's serious. And this is why Jude says it's like snatching them out of a fire. There's a third group, though. There's a third group. They're they're not just doubting. They're not even just deceived. They've actually... They've actually kind of stepped over the side rope and they're beginning to actually embrace and live out that sin. They've, they now have become convinced that of a false teaching and they're actually now living that out as a lifestyle. And here, Jude again, he calls us, God calls us to move in mercy with urgency, speaking truth and love. We're putting on the brakes. We're going over, and we're trying to grab them. But look at what Jude says. He cautions us 
to do so with fear. Do you see that? He says to do that with fear. To others show mercy with fear. Why? Because he doesn't want us to be, to, as we lean over to try to reach and help someone back onto the race, that we ourselves don't fall out of the race and begin to embrace the, that false teaching and lifestyle. This is like a fire truck catching fire while trying to put out a fire. This is like a lifeguard drowning while trying to rescue someone from drowning. And Jude and Paul caution us. They said, yes, you got to go after them, but be, be wise. Be wise. Use discernment on how to go about that. Galatians 1 verse 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual... That just means you who have the Holy Spirit inside of you, which is every child of God, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That is the gentleness that the Spirit provides, the very Spirit who lives inside of children of God. And yet keep watch. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And so we want to use humble alertness, sober discernment as we seek to urgently show mercy. And so, we're running this race of faith. We want to finish well. We need to be reminded of and remember God's warnings. We need, to, we need to remain in God's love. We want to reach out with God's mercy. And yet, we, want, we do all of this. We do all of this so that we can all together, as we're running this race together, rejoice in God's greatness. And that's how this letter ends, rejoicing in God's greatness. This is how we finish the race well. You've often found, I'm sure you're watching any kind of sports or even the Olympics, you'll notice athletes are constantly listening to music because music helps the athlete be reminded of what they're doing or get excited about what they're doing. Singing is hardwired into image bearers. If you're a human, you're an image bearer. You bear the image of God because you're made in the image of God. And God is a singing God. And he's hardwired you for music. I don't know if you knew that. But that's why you see scripture filled with songs. And here's one of them. This is how this letter ends in a doxology, which is a, an explosion of praise and worship to God for who he is and all that he has done. And all that he has said. And it calls us to delight in these things and to do so together. Notice how it starts in verse 24. Now to him. It starts with now because these are always true. So it really doesn't matter what stage of the marathon you're in. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. These are always true. You can actually always sing this. This is always true no matter what. Now to him. Now, in order to understand this, we're actually going to start at the, at the back and work our way backwards to the front. Now to him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. That's pretty comprehensive. Who is worthy of all this, of all the glory? That is, all the honor and praise. Who's worthy of all that? Who's worthy of all majesty and dominion and power? That is the right to rule and reign over all creation. Who's worthy of that? It says, God our Savior. 
God our Savior, that's who's worthy. He is able. He's the only one who is able. Able to do what? Able to keep us from stumbling out of the race. Able to cause us to finish well and cross the finish line. Able to cause us to stand after the race before the presence of God, blameless and with great joy. He is able. He's the only one who is able to keep us all the way. This is what verse 1 says. If you jump right back to the beginning of the letter, it says, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept, kept for Jesus Christ. Do you know that the Father is keeping you right now? He is upholding you right now in the palm of his hand. He's carrying you by his everlasting arms. He is going to make sure you finish the race. Yes, yes, we have responsibilities, but all the while it's God who's doing it. It's God who is moving underneath, behind, and above, and around us. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this is, what, this is why we should praise God. He caused you to be born again. He adopted you into his family. He made you his beloved. Not only that, he's keeping and guarding this inheritance for you as a child of God that Jesus won for us of the new heavens and the new earth. He's, he's guarding that. It, it doesn't corrupt. He doesn't lose it. It's not like it goes bankrupt or forecloses. God's keeping it. He's preparing it. He's reserved it for you. There's nothing that can get in the way of that. And not only that, it says that he's kept us in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are being guarded. He's keeping the inheritance. He's keeping us. He's keeping us for the inheritance. He's keeping the inheritance for us. We are God's inheritance. Ephesians 1 verse 14 and 15 say, we inherit God. We are going to be with God. This is an incredible plan. This is what God has planned out for his beloved. Now, being kept by God practically doesn't mean that we are sinless, obviously. We trip up, we get tripped and snared along the way for sure, but being kept by God means that we are always led to repentance. That's the mark of a Christian. No, no one's pretending to be perfect. First John says if someone says they're perfect, they're a liar. But if they confess their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. This is what it means to be kept by God, is that even when we choose to sin, that God, by his Holy Spirit inside of us, and by brothers and sisters around us, call us back. We hear the shepherd's voice, John 10. We hear the good shepherd's voice, and his sheep always listen to his voice. Yeah, 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 it's messy, it gets complicated, but they always listen. They always repent, because God is empowering and sustaining their faith. It's a, it's a fire that can't get snuffed out. It's a flame that you can't quench. It's something that God himself is fueling, empowering, enabling, keeping. This is the work of 
God. Of course, this highlights the beautiful biblical tension of our full responsibility and God's absolute sovereignty. God is in complete control of all things. He's mapped out the whole race, and yet he's called us to actively trust him and obey him and follow him and run the race. All the while, he's the one empowering us, sustaining us, keeping us to the very end. Both are true. This is beautifully comforting as a believer because I know that I don't have enough strength to do this on my own, but as I trust him, he's going to strengthen me. And when I am running out of strength, when, I, when, I'm, when it's getting foggy, when it's getting confusing, when I don't know what way to go, when it gets really hard and messy, I know God's still got me. I know he's still carrying me. It's not as though my confusion confuses God. He's got me. He is keeping me. And when this race is over, and we cross that finish line, we will enter into his joy. It says that we will stand before his presence, the presence of his glory, with great joy. That's actually one word. We have two in English. It literally means extreme joy, hyper-happiness, abundant gladness, bursting with joy. That's what it means, that we will be able to stand before his presence with incredible, incredible joy. This is what God is calling us to. This is what he's calling us to finish the race. Keep coming, keep coming. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the starter and the finisher of your faith as you run towards his joy. And even now, we experience his joy now, don't we? So it's not like all the joy is in front of us. We have his joy right now, the joy of being beloved. And we know that as we keep running the race, fueled by that love and joy, we are going to enter into an ocean of love and joy that is way beyond what we can imagine, as sweet as the joy and the experience of his love is right now as we run. First Peter talks about this in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, filled with praise and honor to the Lord. And in so doing, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Beloved, let us keep running with joy, knowing that we are about to enter into joy unimaginable. Let us continue to remember God's warnings. Let's remain in his love. Let us reach out with God's mercy. But let us rejoice in his greatness. Let us worship our way all the way to heaven together. And when we see him, we will be made like him. And when we see him face to face, we'll be with him forever. The race will be done. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus to run the race for us, to be our forerunner, to map out the whole course, to really win the race and credit that reporting card, that report card of win to us, that we might stand before you blameless for all the times that we have
stopped running and sinned. We thank you for making a way to be completely forgiven, for making a way for us to be completely guarded and kept all the way to the end and to do so together. We can't do this alone. We need each other. We thank you, Jesus. This is all a part of your wise plan. Thank you for mapping it out perfectly. We don't understand. There's parts of the course that we just wish weren't there. But we trust you. And we look forward to seeing you face to face when you come. Come, Lord Jesus.